Welcome back to the Derm Club podcast. As the population ages, having a strong understanding of geriatric skin care disease is important. Whether you are a geriatrician, primary care physician, or dermatologist, we are going to be increasingly involved in the skin care of more patients in subacute settings, adults congregate living environments, and nursing homes. To explore the comprehensive dermatologic needs for the aging population, we are fortunate to have Dr. Daniel Butler. Dr. Daniel Butler is a dermatologist at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, where he co-directs the geriatric dermatology department. Dr. Butler is also one of the co-founders for the GeriDerm Expert Resource Group, a community of dermatologists who, have, who promote the health and appropriate treatment of older adults with skin disease. This is a topic very dear to my heart because I'm very close with my grandparents and I am so happy to welcome you, Dr. Butler, to the Derm Club podcast. Thanks so much for having me, this is exciting. <laughs> Let's get started with a question that um, many, both me and many others would love to understand, what is geriatric dermatology? Why is there a specialty around that? Yeah, thanks for asking. This is uh, something I, I, I really enjoy talking about exactly for the reason that you brought up in the introduction, which is that I think it's personal for everyone. Um, and, and, and that's how I'll circuitously answer the question, which is geriatric dermatology is a little bit different for all the stakeholders. So it's a little bit different for patients, it's a little bit different for family members, and then it's a little bit different for providers. Um, and that's a fun way to think of a, sort of this neo subfield of dermatology and, and internal medicine. And what I mean by it's different in all those elements is this is a population-based subspecialty. So we're sort of looking at all the influences on skin and aging. And sometimes those are uh, directly related to sort of the personal and the, and the uh, patient experience. Like, for example, who's going to take you to an appointment? Who's going to get you from the car into the clinic? And then on the more scientific or provider side, geriatric dermatology also involves really nuanced pathophysiology of itching or uh, the natural history of basal cells. So it's very expansive. And I, I get asked that question a lot, but it really is under the umbrella, anything that impacts the skin of older adults. And, and there's really no age cutoff for it. That's another common question I get, you know, what is, what is geriatrics? I think we're even moving away from that word. So it's just aging. And, um, you know, I think part of this also is that there's a big force in dermatology and there's nothing against this force of anti-aging. And so we need a force on the other side that's pro this inevitability of aging. And I think ger geriatric dermatology is a little bit of that force as well. Well, it sounds like I would have fun in, in your specific um, specialty because I really love working with older people. And I want to, I'm curious for my own um, grandmother and, and, you know, other grandparents, until what age is it important for patients to have um, an annual body skin exam at, in the geriatric population? It's uh, another really good question because it, uh, 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 it's, it's a tough one to answer. 
um, I try not to make any distinctions on a number age, meaning I don't look at someone's age and then distinguish if this is someone who continues to need screening or evaluation. I think it's really contingent on what the patient feels comfortable with mixed with what we know from the clinical or historical side is their risk. So here's a good example. If you have a 70 year old, which I don't consider old, who has a ton of comorbidities, is being treated for a number of different things and they uh, uh, diligently find their way into the dermatology clinic and they're frail and they need a ton of help and their other comorbidities are more substantial than what we're seeing on the skin, is that someone on that day that we have to treat an actinic keratosis uh, on, their, on a lower risk area like their forearm? I think it's a, it's a legitimate question. And obviously I'm cherry picking some of these, they get much more complex. But on the other side of that, you can have a 95 year old who walks into clinic on their own, um, has been diligent to come in once a year for a really long time because they have a history of multiple uh, keratinocyte carcinomas. And you know, they're swimming three times a week, they're social, you know, they live in a, in a, in a community setting. And absolutely, that's someone I'm going to uh, treat, treat as if they have plenty of life expectancy. So I think um, in that question of yours is like, what are the things that we have to look at that may help us really define someone's age more so than, their no, than, than the number of years that they've lived? And I think that's part of the fun of this uh, growing field is, is determining what those look like and then training the future of dermatology to start integrating those questions, those concepts into how we discuss plans with patients. So um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not that we're not doing it already, but I wouldn't say it's, it's absolutely commonplace. Um, so yeah. It sounds like 90 is a new 70. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so for everyone. <laughs> I hope I'm that latter patient. So how do you treat elderly patients? You know, my grandmother often complains of her back being itchy and it's frustrating for her. But at the same time, I avoid multiple medications, specifically antihistamines, um, because of their sedative effect. They can cause dizziness, falls, which is, or these are already concerns in the elderly population. Um, how do you go about like, treating specifically itch, which I know itch gets worse with age. Uh, it's, a, it's another awesome question because this is like the, the, uh, one of my career hopes is that we get more clarity in this. And you know, this is a vast clinical problem. I mean, it is everywhere. Um, and it's likely that people on this podcast who are listening to this or watching this will, will get itchy at some point. So it's huge and it's a really challenging and fun challenge. It's a, it's a really challenging and fun thing to look into because when you start to peel away the answer to that of how do we manage itch in older adults, there's so many fascinating, uh, pieces to the experience of aging. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking sort of uh, ambiguously, but what I mean by that is when you start to peel away why people itch and why older adults itch, you start to see that there are nuanced changes in the nerves, nervous system. There's nuanced changes in the immune system. There's nuanced changes in the, in the keratinocytes or the primary skin barrier. And all of those have this complex interplay in how they 
uh, affect each other and then ultimately affect the clinical outcome of itching. And when you start to look at those and you start to peel it away, it starts to make more and more sense, albeit it's still really challenging to be able to manage. So I'm, I talk about itch in those three, uh, with those three contributors because often that's how we target it. And the challenge is figuring out which or or which two or which three are contributing to itch in a certain patient. So if someone comes in with fixed itch in their mid back uh, and then fixed itch on their dorsal forearm, I'm thinking, okay, this is probably someone with a more neuropathic component to their itch. So I'm gonna go down that treatment pathway. Or if someone has red spotted dots on the center of their chest, I'm thinking, okay, this may be more immunologic uh, as its primary cause. And I'm gonna go down immunologic pathways. But where this gets, again, more complex and more challenging is that older adults, as they always do, they never present cleanly. So there's always overlap and it can be really challenging clinically. And this is where geriatric dermatology, we have so much fun, is that it's not the perfect setting to be able to look at someone and just make an easy diagnosis. There's a lot of complexity as you peel away those layers, trying to figure out what are the contributors to this patient's itch. And it's been a really fun um, uh, uh, thing for me and uh, the other people involved in our uh, aging skin collaborative here at UCSF to start to peel those away and find targets for itching. Um, so, so that's my first answer. The second answer is then once you figure out what the contributors of the itch for a patient are, then you got to figure out how to treat it and treat it safely. So you brought up antihistamine. So for historical use, and then probably because of their, their ubiquity on the market over the counter, antihistamines for some reason have been just associated with itching. They really don't work for itching. You know, they work pretty well to put you to sleep and they work really well for uh, um, uh, histaminergic itch like urticaria. So, you know, you can use it in older adults for those in select circumstances. But for the most part, you know, you're trying to find other treatments that are gonna be safe that aren't uh, that aren't that are targeted to your type of itch, which you know antihistamines don't necessarily target the most common causes of itch in older adults, which I would argue are immunologic that are not histaminergic, and then also neuropathic. So there are a lot of different treatments along those pathways, and we're actively trying to figure out how to how to determine if they're safe in in older adults, and we need more studies to do that. So I welcome anyone who wants to help uh, uh, bring in a comfort with all the medications that we use specifically in our vulnerable population. Yes, and um, you know, itch is kind of this new unchartered territory. And I just recently spoke to Dr. Brian Kim who works at Mount Sinai for the Itch Center. I recommend checking out my podcast with him where he really talks about the fundamentals of itch and maybe there could be some collaboration there. So let's move on. Um, you know, we talked about itch. What are other common dermatologic diseases you treat in the elderly population? Yeah, I, we Brian and I have already gotten to work together, and uh, you know, I'm 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 glad that we have brilliant minds like him uh, uh, looking into it, and then uh, brilliant uh, outgoing people like you getting getting being able to talk about it. Uh, so, other than itch. The hardest things I find for dermatologists in older adults are the management of 
complex malignancies as we see people with multiple comorbidities. That's certainly one that I see people get stuck on. I think nuanced presentations of complex immunologic diseases like bullous pemphigoid is another one where we have a really hard time uh, managing older adults. And then the other one that's really common uh, is um, ulcerations. So ulcerations specifically in the lower extremities or in contact areas, pressure areas, uh, and I use the word ulcerations, but usually they're sores. Sometimes they're not even ulcerations. Uh, those are the ones that I think are really, from a disease perspective, are, can be really perplexing for dermatologists. I would also argue that we don't really have great disease schematics for older adults. And so I think that there's a lot of things that we don't even know that we're missing in older adults. So here's an example. We looked at pyoderma gangrenosum, um, which I think schematically we all have from medical school a concept of what that looks like which is like a you know a 40s woman with inflammatory bowel disease and a and a non-healing ulcer on the legs you can visualize we, it as you talk about it <laughs> right so that's kind of the schematic but when we actually looked at the uh, at a large cohort of pyoderma gangrenosum we found that most patients with pyoderma gangrenosum were actually older adults with sometimes solid or hematologic malignancies who had multifocal ulcerations on their lower extremities. So it sort of breaks up the disease schematic. So I'm mentioning this because I think there's a lot of diseases where we have a schematic of what the disease is. And unfortunately, the presentation in older adults is a little bit different. I would also argue that atopic dermatitis is very similar to that, where we have really defined criteria of what atopic dermatitis is in younger adults and certainly in adolescents. But the, atypy, the atypical presentation in older adults almost makes them excluded from that diagnosis, and it makes it hard to include. So I don't really have, I, 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 I've been saying this more and more recently, um, I don't really have a great idea of how many older adults have atopic dermatitis, or if I should be even calling older adults with sort of this eczematous chronic rash atopic dermatitis if they don't fit the classic criteria. So uh, that's my long-winded way of saying, mm -hmm. I think that there's a couple diseases, and then I think we also have to bring a microscope to some of our dermatology flagship diseases to get a better idea of, of, of how older adults are presenting with those. I have something um, quite specific, but I've noticed during my practice where I see, you know, older, I see, I've seen patients across all populations and ages. And I always notice that in the elderly population, there's, or in the aging population, that there is an increase in seborrheic keratoses. And we often tell the patient, these are wisdom spots, or um, also the increase of cherry angiomas. Um, and I know these are two, just two that I'm mentioning, that these are two lesions that really do increase, it seems, with age. Um, why is that? And, and what are the best treatment options that seem to work um, to get rid of, uh, maybe not specifically the cherry angiomas, but um, the seborrheic sub keratoses? Yeah, it's those, that's, I've never been asked that question, and I'm glad you did, because I'll be the first one to tell you, I'm not sure exactly why seborrheic keratosis uh, and cherry angiomas uh, are more common in older adults. Um, you know, I, I usually sort of give the, the hand-wavy answer of, time and experience, but I'm sure there's some basic scientist out there or someone who understands the, the true biology of aging that could give us a better answer. I think you bring up a really good point though, which is we sort of 
roll our eyes or brush away. And I, you know, I'm being a generalist here, but we, when we see those things or hear those complaints, we sort of roll our eyes or, or brush away that those are, um, that they're, they're just benign, right? And I think it's a really important thing to remember that we should not ever make assumptions, uh, particularly on older adults, if something's bothersome or not. So what I mean, what I mean by that is you, know, you have someone coming in, they're older, they have a bunch of seborrheic keratosis. In our eyes, that looks like a totally benign thing, but that may be really bothersome to them. Sometimes they can be inflamed and really itchy. Sometimes they may just uh, not look great and that's a quality of life impairment. And so we want to stay unbiased and make sure that you know, we can meet the patient where they need to be met. And I certainly have older adults who have major, major, major comorbidities, even involving the skin. But the thing that they're worried about is the seborrheic keratosis. So certainly you can educate them and tell them, hey, this is not the thing you have to worry about, but you can also provide them with an ability to treat it. And so sometimes after counseling them on what to expect, I will absolutely treat these with liquid nitrogen or with uh, a light uh, electro desiccation just to try to get rid of them because just having the ability to remove one of those can impact the quality of life. And you never wanna get stuck on an assumption where just because they're older, they may not care about what something looks like or that something benign is growing on their skin. Okay, and let's, I wanna talk about um, skin cancer. What is the likelihood or how much how many folds does it increase for an old a patient over 65 to develop skin cancer once reaching that age? Yeah, I think we're getting more sophisticated in being able to answer this. I don't have exact percentages, but I think when you start looking at at specific demographics and specific types of skin cancer, you know, melanoma versus non-melanoma, even some of the sort of offshoot dangerous ones like Merkel cell carcinoma, you start to see increases across all demographics as we age. Um, so it's certainly a concern and probably one of the most common things that older adults come to their dermatologist for. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important characteristic to be able to, 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 to use that, that sort of that, that characteristic of what exactly is your risk profile as you age is such an important thing for us dermatologists to have really good comfort with and be able to explore with patients. And there's so many different risk factors that would go into one specific patient and being, being able to talk with them about those things can really help us as providers guide that discussion and guide the level of our clinical concern as we're going in to evaluate a patient or you know, hearing about their plight over the phone. What specific characteristics do you um, consider when you're when you're assessing a patient and considering like okay they're gonna either develop skin cancer or should we remove this lesion should we leave it alone? Yeah, so this is a, I, I feel like we could have a we could have a, an entire seminar on this. Um, and again, there's no perfect answer to it. Um, you know, if you're seeing someone in clinic and you're worried about a lesion. Uh, I always get the question of, you know, how do you treat a basal cell in someone who's 90? Or how do you treat a squamous cell in someone who's being treated for cancer elsewhere? And I, I, I've never had a great answer for it, but I think I'm honing it down. And I think the answer to it is you talk with the patient about what they want. So I think there's this practice in dermatology, which is common and we all do it, which is like, we are hunters of basal cells and we are hunters of squamous cells. And once we find them, we know what to do with them because we're so well-trained to be able to do those things. And um, 
I think when push comes to shove and there's a huge challenge, like you were telling me about your grandma, or um, I was telling you before about my grandpa who was 90 in his 90s and had a, a basal cell. Um, ultimately, what we can do is engage the patient in what we call shared decision making and communicate with them what the risks would be of all the different options, whether that's clinical surveillance, whether that's a more half measured option. Uh, like a EDNC, or whether you want to go all the way down to, to Mohs for, for, for the patient for the treatment, which I think is great, uh, which is a great option in some cases for older adults. You make sure that they know what the options are, because then you're able to engage what's important to them. You're able to communicate the risk to them. And then you're also able to create a, a, a treatment relationship. And that's so critical, because I often find that neglect of non-melanoma skin cancers can be really bad in older adults. So I always engage patients when I'm worried about a lesion to say, hey, if we're not gonna do something today, I need you to stay engaged with this lesion because I don't wanna see you back in three years when this is twice the size, but in three to four, five, six months, that lesion probably won't change as much. So I'm talking about all these different factors that go into treating a specific lesion. And so I think it's a combination of our knowledge of these lesions mixed with the patient goals. And that should drive how often someone should be screened a lot of the time, as well as the treatment decisions of a specific lesion. Is this the same thought process that you use when deciding between surgery and radiation for patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I think there's, there's two schools of thought and I think I, I, I believe them both. So when you have a, when you have a concerning lesion on an, on an adult patient who may have comorbidities enough to where there's going to be challenges with the treatment, there's two schools of thought. So one is you leave it and you watch it clinically before you treat it. And uh, you make sure that they know what the risks are of it. We call that clinical surveillance and that's been uh, well, documented, well documented as a, uh, a successful treatment option for patients undergoing a number of different things at the time. And then the other option that I, that I also practice and believe in is to biopsy everything and then decide thereafter. So I think it, a lot of it depends on the patient themselves for a concerning lesion of what they want to do, but I believe in both of them. And the biopsying first option, I think, gives you a little bit more data, which can be helpful in ultimately deciding if you're going to need to do radiation or further treatment, because the biopsy, even if it's small, is going to give you some important clinical characteristics, or, or I should say pathologic characteristics of the lesion. So we can combine our clinical and the path to be able to tell how aggressive this lesion would be. So for example, you know, you may see a basal cell and you say, oh, okay, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain this is a basal cell, but then you do the biopsy and there's, you know, it's micronodular and now I'm a little bit more worried about it. Or, you know, it's a, it looks like a squamous cell. Yeah, I can, I can kind of tell that patients undergoing other stuff. If we biopsy it, then we can ultimately see if there's any invasive element to it or, or what is the level of differentiation. And that may dictate how aggressive we are either surgically, radiation-wise, or even just monitoring it. So I think I believe in both sects uh, and there's, there's kind of, it, we're a little bit split in the geriatric dermatology community, which I think is good. Debate is always good. 
And um, I think everyone should have that discussion with their patients about which track they want to go on. Yeah, that open communication is important. Um, so what about actinic keratoses? These are often considered precancers, and I'm not sure exactly the um, amount of AKs that have been actually shown to turn into squamous cell carcinomas, but what is your threshold for treating AKs in elderly population and the elderly patients? You know, like my grandmother's 95. She probably has a few AKs that I could find. Do I go out of my way and get those treated or do I say, you know what, by the time that they're likely to even turn into something, it won't matter. All, again, all great questions. And you know, it's, you start to bring in uh, the mix of the ethical and the, and the clinical problem, which I think is really interesting and what makes this field so, uh, so fascinating. Um, as far as actinic keratosis, you know, there's so many different studies that show the, the rate of conversion to an SEC, you know, somewhere between 1%, 0.1%. And I think patients need to know that. I think the, the use of the word of precancer for these can sometimes be uh, um, over the top or it can be uh, misleading to patients. So I think making sure that they know those statistics is really important. And then I'm like a broken record, but going back to the patient and helping them understand what these lesions ultimately mean. So if they have one spot on a low risk area, is that really something that we need to treat? I think it's less likely that we need to treat it. If we have someone who's had the hit, who's had a history of a of an invasive squamous cell, and now they have 15 on their scalp, even if they're 95, you know, maybe I'm going to have that conversation and push a little bit harder. And then there's the last sect of the population that I think is really important that we acknowledge, which is aging transplant patients. So I want to, I would be remiss not to mention them, but that's a huge risk population and so different. And again, we go back to that initial part of the conversation we had, which is you know, it's not just an age. So a 79 year old who, you know, has a couple AKs, but no history of a transplant uh, versus the 79 year old with 10 AKs um, who has a history of a transplant, those are completely different patients and how aggressive I'm gonna be. So you wanna be able to share that with the patient, let them make the decision using your clinical knowledge of their risk profile. So I use an, an honest conversation about what, you know, the conversion of an actinic keratosis uh, percentage looks like mixed with their clinical risk factors and what I'm seeing on their skin and in their history. So I know that's not a direct answer, but that's usually how we approach it. And I'll also acknowledge one thing, because you keep hitting on these really important topics, is like, this is not an easy conversation to have. And it's not built into the normal practice of dermatology, which is, and I love this part of dermatology, is fast-paced, decision-making, moving, doing, procedural, room to room to room. And so that's where, you know, geriatric dermatology is working to help people integrate some of these concepts into the practice. We're definitely not there yet, but hopefully in the future, we'll have really, um, implementable ways to, to, to promote these conversations and make it easier for us all. I'm sure you will as the population ages and your clientele expands. Um, so I'm assuming during the pandemic, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you did a little bit of telemedicine. Um, <laughs> so I see you shaking your head. Did you find this easy or difficult to treat patients using telemedicine? You know, I know my grandmother, she wouldn't be able to use a computer if it wasn't for the help of my parents or 
her grandchildren. Um, so what was your experience doing telemedicine with this population? And um, do you see it as a beneficial or possible? Yeah, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of hope for telemedicine in general for the aging population. And I think there's a lot of potential. COVID sort of uh, pushed us straight into it. And I think that um, it was good in some ways and it was negative in others. Um, I've had wonderful experiences with some older adult patients who are really tech savvy and it, and it makes it so that, you know, it's a, it's a huge convenience for their life. And then I had other experiences with older adults where it, it made them even, uh, even sort of remove them further from the medical institution because that became the standard of connectivity and they just couldn't do it or they didn't have help. So I think that it's, it, it can only improve, but we have to be really cautious from a, at a systems level to not continue to exclude older adults or those who are less IT um, engaged, because that's a huge risk of yes, hypothetically, it would work really well. But I think for older adults, we're going to have to implement huge systems changes to be able to make sure that that access is still there. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of people who are working on that. And I, uh, I think ultimately sort of this COVID change to practice will push us in the right direction. But I think it was a little jarring at first. And it, it was helpful to a small percent of the population. But we have to be really careful moving forward that we're inclusive and engaging on a systems level to make sure that we're not leaving anybody behind. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like I saw so many benefits of it. I can think of one specific patient who had like um, several um, cancerous lesions on their legs and they were using, I, th I think it was like acetretin at the time. And they, they would, we would be able to talk to them. And it, first of all, they had moved out of state during the pandemic in with their family. And they were able to contact us every other, every week to, for follow-up. And it really helped. And not only that, but the family was able to be involved. And normally the family was either working or just not there at the time. So it made it much easier to have a conversation and to make sure that everyone was on the, the caretakers and everyone else was on the same page. Um, how about um, adherence and compliance to medication in the elderly population? And in general, and does, the tele does telemedicine seem to improve compliance? It's a really good question. And, and, and drawing the, the, the line between the two, I, I don't have a great answer for it. Um, you know, adherence is an issue with older adults, uh, particularly with dermatologic medications, because we're, we're often giving creams and it, it does take some, uh, some working of the body to ultimately be able to apply those to, to important areas. And then, you know, just making sure that, uh, at, that, that our, our, you know, our, our, our recommendations and, and how to take this and how to do that are, are really clear, uh, I think are even more important for dermatologic medications um, for older adults. And I'm not sure how telemedicine directly uh, was implicated in that, but you do hit on one of the most important parts of geriatric dermatology, which is, you know, beyond the treatment, can we actually deliver this treatment? And there's pretty good evidence that uh, topical medications have lower adherence than oral medications in older adults, which have lower adherence 
than biologic or injectable medications. And so it's, it's these types of little studies that are so critical for us because uh, we have to know that. We have to know that when we're going in uh, and, and that can help dictate how we approach the treatment. So I go in to my uh, grandfather's um, uh, bathroom where he keeps everything. And of course, all of a sudden I'm seeing 25 different creams and I know his dermatologist, his dermatologist is one of my best friends, but it's just, you know, after years and years and years of going to the dermatologist, people just start accumulating these things and, and you can see how adherence becomes an issue and where it can become really dangerous. Like the most common one that I think we all worry about and have seen before is, um, is you know, using Effudex in the wrong place. So those little things are so critical in older adults, and uh, we need a lot of, uh, of work on how to, how to best manage adherence and think about it in this population. So funny you say that because I was just cleaning out my grandmother's um, bathroom, and I came across like seven tubes of different steroids and different antibiotic creams. And and when, anytime I try to put any topical ointment on her, she tells me it's too cold. She doesn't want it. So I totally understand where you're coming from. I am assuming telemedicine may be able to help us in, in this regard because you can kind of follow up with the patient more often and say, hey, just call them for a quick follow-up. Hey, did you apply your topical ointment today? So hopefully that's something that we can use to our benefit in the future. Where do you see the future of geriatric dermatology going? I, well, first of all, I'll just acknowledge, I think that's such a great creative idea. You know, like how do you, how do you fix adherence or, or improve adherence with, uh, you know, connectivity? And um, that's a well-known concept. And I think, again, back to systems level where I think, you know, geriatric dermatology, geriatric dermatology's future will have a lot of systems-based uh, um, sort of management strategies or changes for its future success. I think that's a really great one. And I'll say we need more creative people like you to, to start thinking in that way of how we can improve these things. So, you know, the future of geriatric dermatology is, you know, it can go in any, in any one of a million directions. And I think that's one of the cool things about it. Um, I think of geriatric dermatology as a little bit of a step aside or a step away from a really disease specific model that that sort of academic dermatology has had to date, which is, you know, we have monoma clinics and we have vesicular bullous clinics and connective tissue clinics, which are all great and we should still have those. But then geriatric dermatology clinic is like a big bear hug for everything. You know, we would see anything that comes in and hopefully we would be able to integrate some of these systems changes to help what we can do from the specialty side, from the diagnostic side. And so what I mean by that is hopefully we would have uh, systems that would promote our specialty. So geriatric dermatology clinics where the ergonomics of the chairs for the older adults are specialized for, uh, you know, for people who may have limited mobility. We would have clinics where you know, people could easily either park or, or you know, walk in without having to, to move a ton like you mentioned, to have follow-up schedules and abilities so that patients aren't needing to come in with a ton of regularity when it's really challenging for them to come in and we can check in with them. And then also a, a huge integration with our primary care and geriatrics colleagues. 
Um, and I think that that, that future is really exciting because it really integrates us into the house of medicine. And I think those system changes will go right along with some of the basic science, clinical practice, research, uh, educational things that I think are really exciting about geriatric dermatology. So the future of those are really understanding itch in older adults and development of medications that are, that are specific and safe for itching in older adults. Um, same thing with including this in our educational paradigms, like how can we change the disease schematics that we all hold so dear, like atopic dermatitis or, or pyoderma gangrenosum or lower extremity ulcerations, and include these little disease nuances that we know about older adults that when they're little on the pathophysiologic level, turn out to be really big on the patient presentation and clinical level. So that educational change is uh, really exciting and I think happening all over the country right now um, with, a, with sort of a heightened look at, at this population. So that's my excited uh, uh, look at the future. And, and there's plenty of ways to get involved if anyone's interested. I totally agree with you. I think that collaborative care and the use of digital health tools is really going to be implemented in the future and very helpful um, to improve the care of the elderly population. Dr. Butler, thank you so much for joining the Derm Club podcast today. I love speaking to you about this topic. Um, my grandparents are very special to me and anything geriatric related really resonates with me. So I really thank you for your time. Thank you for having me, and I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad that it resonates so 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 well with you, and I'm so happy that you uh, bring this topic up. I think it's important, and I think it resonates with a bunch of people. I'm just like you, you know. This started with my four grandparents, and and getting to see their experience with aging, and uh, I had a good mentor uh, who who used to say, "Aging uh, aging is your problem." So you know, everyone's going to have it, and it's an inevitability. So we may as well all jump on and, and, and try to solve uh, some of the challenges that it presents for us. So thanks for bringing this up and thanks for uh, discussing it with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club podcast. If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.